So we've reached the height of summer in 1460, and several battles have been fought. Yet the Duke of York and the Queen seem no closer to any sort of resolution of their differences. The Yorkists are again in the driving seat, but apparently without a roadmap to follow. Is it not just 1455 all over again? Well, no, it's not. The state of affairs in summer 1460 was a world away from that of May 1455. True, both saw pitched battles between the court and Yorkist factions, but the situation was very different because neither faction could claim control over all of England, whilst Warwick held most of the southeast and had strengthened his grip on Calais. The Queen's forces, though somewhat disorganised, were strong in much of the north where the Percys and the Cliffords held sway, and in the southwest. Warwick held the king, and thus could act with legal authority on his side. But his control was limited. The queen herself had been forced to flee into Wales, but she still had her son, Edward Prince of Wales, with her, if anything should happen to King Henry. So the situation was far more equally balanced than it appeared at first sight. And of course, there was the elephant in the room, or rather, out of the room. For Richard, Duke of York, in whose name all of this chaos had been undertaken, was still in Ireland. The $60 million question was, what was York going to do now? Early in September 1460, York made his dramatic entrance when he landed at Chester. What became clear almost at once is that York was entering the ring as world champion, not a contender. To those who joined him as he made his way through the marches and across the Midlands, he made it clear that he was coming as king, not subject. Such ideas were conveyed in those days by meaningful signs. I don't mean placards reading York for king, because most people couldn't read anyway but they recognised the royal coat of arms displayed by York and the fact that his sword was carried upright before him as he processed towards London. The latter was a clear indication of kingship and everyone would have taken note. In October, York reached Westminster, then of course outside the walls of the City of London, accompanied by hundreds of supporters. The next scene is very well known, where York goes into the Parliament chamber and approaches the royal throne, resting his hand upon the seat and apparently expecting those present to acclaim him at once as the rightful king. They didn't. Instead, the Archbishop of Canterbury broke the awkward silence to inquire whether York wanted to see King Henry. Not for the first time, Richard, Duke of York, had made a bad political misjudgment, for among the lords there was no enthusiasm to force out Henry VI. But clearly York had decided that the only way he could stay in power was to press his claim to the throne. We can understand this because several times before he had made agreements with the king, only to see them overturned in favour of his enemies. He had come to believe that no lasting settlement could be reached as long as Henry remained king. 
he may well have been right, but unfortunately for York, hardly anyone else agreed with him, and most notably, one of those who disagreed was the Earl of Warwick. Whatever the leaders had agreed in Ireland, Warwick was pursuing a more conciliatory policy than York expected. As long as York's claim remained theoretical, it could be ignored, put in a dusty drawer somewhere and filed under A for awkward. But once that claim was formally lodged, the highest court in the land, the Lords in Parliament, had to make a decision about it one way or the other. Put yourself in their shoes. They had sworn oaths of allegiance to King Henry, and the throne had been in Lancastrian hands for three generations. Few folk in 1460 knew anything first-hand about the events of 1399, when the first Lancastrian king took the throne from Richard II. Yet, York claimed that the throne was his by right, arguing, Though right for a time be put to silence, yet it rotteth not, nor shall not perish. Fine words. So what was wrong with York's policy? Well, quite a lot, really. York's actions, as ever, were underpinned by his basic belief that really he ought to be king, that he was of royal blood, that it was unfair that he had to put up with all this political manoeuvring just to have some say in the affairs of the kingdom. As long as he had wealth, power and a genuinely important role in the government, York had accepted that Henry VI was his anointed king. But in the 1450s, years of struggle and rejection by the crown had thoroughly eroded his sense of loyalty. The trouble was that no one else saw it that way. They viewed with distaste his willingness to overthrow the king, a king, remember, who was not going to be awarded any best king ever medals. Yet still the lords supported him. So there was an impasse. York was not prepared to submit to Henry, and the lords were not willing to depose Henry. What was needed then was a nice compromise, some sort of flexible filler to cover the cracks for a while. That compromise was optimistically named the Act of Accord, passed by Parliament on the 24th of October 1460. The Act of Accord decreed that Henry would retain the throne during his lifetime, but after his death, York and his heirs would succeed him. Sounds good? No, not really. It ought to have been called the Act of Discord, because it divided political opinion very sharply. It required men of all ranks to decide whether it was actually any more fair that the current Prince of Wales should be disinherited than Richard Duke of York. It also provided the Queen with a purpose and a rallying cry, and the balance seemed to be turning in her favour. While King Henry's half-brother, Jasper Tudor, gathered support in Wales, Queen Margaret took ship to Scotland, where she bought some men by surrendering the town of Berwick-upon-Tweed to the Scots. Meanwhile, Henry Duke of Somerset returned from France, landing in Dorset, and with the support of the Earl of Devon, raised the south-west for King Henry. 
By November, Somerset and Devon were marching north to join with other Lancastrian forces under Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, at York. The Yorkist-controlled government in London was powerless, but they would have to take action if they were not to be swept aside by the burgeoning Lancastrian tide. Then, suddenly, it was all happening. Richard, Duke of York, with his closest ally, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, decided to head north, since that was where the main threat seemed to lie. With them went York's second son, Edmund, Earl of Rutland, and Salisbury's son, Thomas Neville. York's eldest son, Edward, Earl of March, still only 18 years of age, was dispatched to Wales to counter the forces of Jasper Tudor, whilst Warwick remained to keep control in London with King Henry. Winter, as has been said quite a lot in recent years, was coming, and December was not the ideal time to begin a military campaign, especially in the north. York's army of several thousand was harried on its journey northwards, and, though one suspects the losses were not great, they were still not good for morale. Nevertheless, York reached Sandal Castle, near Wakefield, by the 21st of December with his force more or less intact. The problem was that with the main Lancastrian force so close by at Pontefract, York was surrounded by hostile forces and very short of supplies. After all, he had an army to feed. Christmas 1460 must have been very uncomfortable for York and his men. They were frequently obliged to forage away from the castle in the most dangerous of circumstances. What happened next is unlikely ever to be fully explained, like much that happened in the 15th century. Half a dozen reasons have been suggested as to why the Duke of York left the relative security of Sandal Castle to meet the Lancastrians in battle. He was rash, he was betrayed, he was badly informed, he was provoked by insults, or he went to rescue some foraging troops. Take your pick. The sources we have are, as ever, fragments which offer no conclusive explanation. Much has been made of all this, but for me, whatever the reason for his final act, it does not change my assessment of the man as a whole. Many seek to defend York, and I do have some sympathy for his unique and awkward position. But York was a proud man, whose pride sometimes got in the way of his success. He was a far from charismatic leader, and his frequent misjudgments about how other men would act often led him into a whole load of trouble. On the 30th of December, York led his army out to battle, and he, along with possibly several thousand of his men, was killed. His son Edmund was killed in the rout, as was Salisbury's son Thomas. Salisbury himself was later captured and put to death. This was a cataclysmic blow to the Yorkist cause. York and Salisbury, the twin pillars of the Yorkist edifice, had been brought crashing down. Surely this was truly the end of the Yorkist opposition to the Queen and the court of Henry VI. But let's not forget that the powerful Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, still held London, and the King. 
and the Duke of York's eldest son, Edward Earl of March, was in Ludlow gathering men to him. Warwick and March had both just lost a father and a brother, but they had by no means given up the struggle. This crisis was not yet over.